Hello, welcome to episode 203 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter slash X, Instagram and or Facebook. I'm also now on Blue Sky. So if you too are a proud member of that particular elite, do follow along over there. Say hello. Turkey Book Talk is not on there just yet. It's just me. So find me by searching my name. Anyway, in this episode, we hear from Onur Ischi, Associate Professor of International Relations, now at Istanbul's Kadir Has University. And we're going to be discussing his article, Turkey at a Crossroads, the Soviet Threat and Post-War Realignment, 1945 to 1946, recently published in the journal Diplomatic History. The article re-examines the years immediately after the Second World War when Stalin's Soviet Union made a series of military and territorial demands on Turkey, including Soviet naval bases on the Turkish Straits and even territorial demands including provinces along the border in East Anatolia. These demands, or threats, ultimately helped to push Ankara westward and to pursue NATO membership, which it eventually got in 1952. These are critical years, the earliest years of the Cold War, and as we discuss in the conversation, it led to a brief window of time when Turkey was perhaps the closest it's ever been to the US geopolitically. This period has also been the subject of quite a bit of controversy and angry debate inside Turkey over recent years, with different ideological factions disagreeing bitterly over what actually happened and how things might have played out differently. We discuss that as well as what all this can tell us about Turkey's, let's say, complicated relationship with Moscow and the US today. But before we get started, let me appeal once again for support. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together. And I do need listeners support, your support to be able to keep doing it. Since launching the podcast back in 2015, we've given a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. It's extremely rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks and I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners like you. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do. It also gets you some pretty good extras. And those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. 
To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation-proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Onur Ischi. Turkey and the Soviet Union had signed a Treaty of Friendship in 1925, forging very close ties of mutual solidarity in subsequent years. But the relationship later deteriorated, particularly during World War II, when Turkey scrupulously maintained its official neutrality. So I started by asking Onur Ischi, what were Turkey's relations with the Soviet Union like before the Second World War, and how did its position of wartime neutrality affect the relationship? During the interwar period, the Bolsheviks and the Kemalists, two very different groups really in terms of their domestic political targets, created an, an alliance which was against what both of them referred to as the Western dictator international order. It didn't really happen overnight. It took them about a decade. It wasn't until the Great Depression that both of them came to the conclusion that despite their political differences, they have to work together to match what they both described as Western power. And the Soviet Union sent assistance to Turkey's development uh, in the 1930s. And it was a period of great cooperation. But this is not to suggest, I mean, people get this the wrong way, generally speaking. They're thinking that all of a sudden geopolitical disputes disappeared. No, geopolitical disputes were always on the table. What happened was they realized that they have to manage these geopolitical disputes for the sake of a corporation that one day they could essentially challenge, uh, catch up with the West, as uh, the Bolsheviks used to, used to say, catch up and overtake the West. This came to an abrupt end with the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in 1939 until Stalin signed a pact with Hitler, because this was this made Turks unable to balance. And when you look at Turkish foreign policy over the past century, you clearly see an attempt to balance, right? This is a long balancing act. And when they're cornered, when they can't use one party against the other, etc., then they're struck. And this was the reset button. Things deteriorated throughout the Second World War, with the Soviet Union accusing Turkey of being a silent Nazi ally. This was the subject of our first podcast with you in 2020. My book just came out at the time, and, and I spoke about how this gradual, slow deterioration took place. And then we ended up, we ended on a note where we talk about the demands, right? Why did I give you this long introduction instead of 99% of the accounts that you would find on Stalin's demands or post-war demands? Because they give the wrong impression that somehow in 1949, Stalin opens the windows and comes out with these ridiculous demands from Turkey that clearly the Turks were not willing to accept. And then there was a reorientation. This is a fallacy. If you disregard the interwar period, the cooperation, the experience of this mutually beneficial episode between the two states in the 20s and 30s, and if you disregard the loss of it, the gradual drifting apart of these two states, then you don't really understand what really transpired in 1945. And that's where my article starts with. 
I start off with the very first meeting between the Turkish ambassador in Moscow and the Soviet foreign commissar, Vyacheslav Molotov. And this is like a tense meeting, right? Clearly, Molotov insinuates that Turkey should be looking at Poland for the kind of fate that they, that might befall pretty soon. But in Molotov's own terms, the moment was premature because Hitler was still alive in his bunker, but still alive. The Red Army still had to make that final advance on Berlin. And the Turkish ambassador clearly understood that this was more about testing waters. But here's the big question. Were the Turks surprised and were they afraid? This is essentially what this article is about, that they were not surprised, but they were afraid. The article is mostly written for a Western audience and mostly for Cold War scholars. Right now, there is a more or less consensus between American scholars of the Cold War and Russian-trained, Soviet-born and trained historians of the Cold War that Stalin, Stalin was not solely responsible of the exacerbation of the conflicts in 1945-46, right? But because of the war in Ukraine, it's very difficult for Russian scholars like myself to go out and say, listen, there were places that were not in Europe, but in the European periphery where Stalin actually entertained expansionist designs. The moment you say that, the academic scholarly community will remind you of this huge body of scholarship that tells you that there is a consensus on the subject that Stalin was really restrained and trying to restrain himself from aggravating the Cold War, the emerging Cold War disputes. And here, I'm trying to say, listen, in Turkey, in Iran, this wasn't the case. It was clearly in places like Turkey and Iran where Stalin was trying to probe and almost test the Europeans' response. 1945 became the most important turning point in Turkish history, where Turkey turned, uh, recalibrated its foreign policy and facing a Soviet threat, had to mend fences with the Western powers, which were almost exclusively levying moral accusations against Turkey's wartime neutrality, where in a life and death struggle, Turkey was not willing to help them and sat on the fence as the Allied soldiers were dying against the Nazi juggernaut. Turkey was selling chrome ore to Berlin, etc. And there was this moment in 1945 and 46 that Turkey felt really threatened. So as you outlined there, Turkey, immediately after the, the war, Turkey was in this very perilous position where it sensed this threat. Uh, these Turkish officials sensed this threat emanating from the east. And at the core of your article is this very close reading of Turkish, Soviet and US sources. And you say there that the Turkish sources show this very real panic and actually desperation about the threat posed by the Soviet Union and Stalin. You, therefore, somewhat go against the historians who have tended to say that this fear was somehow fabricated and that Soviet demands were like a government-orchestrated myth, essentially. You say it was all too real, or at least perceived as being all too real. You write, quote, the combination of Soviet demands and economic woes created an almost existential crisis in the minds of Turkish policymakers. The US ambassador recognised that the fear of a seizure by Russia of the Straits was deeply rooted in consciousness of all classes in Turkey. Therefore, Washington's acquisition of this new ally, Turkey, later on, 
depended basically on the Turkish elite's desperation and panic. That's really the core of the article, isn't it? It's, it's maybe this surprising revelation to some people that suggests really that the impetus to join NATO ultimately in 1952 really came mostly from the Turkish side rather than Washington dragging this unwilling anchor into the alliance. Really, it was it was Turkey and Turkish officials that perceived this threat from the Soviet Union at the time. Correct. And I actually want to start off by thanking you for giving me the opportunity, because even though the article is written for an English-speaking audience, I want to take this opportunity to explain to the same English-speaking audience, why is this such a big deal in Turkey? There is a binary in Turkish scholarship that the immediate years of post-war, Turkey went through a transition that democratized Turkey, right? Turkey became a multi-party democracy, but also a NATO ally. And there is a binary in scholarship, is a binary argument whether this Soviet threat was really real or it was a, whether it was fabricated. And it's very easy to misconstrue Turkey's desperation, economic desperation, but also geopolitical desperation in 1945 as grounds for, if not fabricating, perhaps exaggerating the Soviet threat. That wasn't really that big of a deal, right? And there is a a substantial body of scholars, journalists, experts, political pundits that still adhere to this notion. And the myth still prevails. And that nowadays we're going through times that it's very easy to say, this is all official history. Official history, good up in the dictionary, it means lies, right? And so what I wanted to do in the archives is to really understand whether there was a sense of threat in Turkey. And this article shows that there is a very clear sense of threat in Turkey, and it's not a product of what happened in Yalta or Potsdam. It's a product of gradual deterioration of Soviet-Turkish relations from 1939 all the way to 1945. But a lot of people are still expanding the public reaction I got after writing this piece you know, I had coffee, beers with scholars that are strong adherents to strongly criticizing my standpoint, essentially, after this piece came out. Some of these people are saying I wrote the most eloquent account of the official narrative, which is not a great praise, to be perfectly honest with you. But, uh, you know, they're saying, well, where's the smoking gun? The smoking gun that they're looking for is, oh, no, you went to the Russian archives. Show us a document where Stalin says, okay, if the Turks do not accept our demands, let's invade Turkey from this side. These are the blueprints of the Turkey invasion. What this piece does is that there is no such document. All of these things that Stalin and Molotov did were probably bluffs. They were bluffing. But the Turks had absolutely no way of knowing that they were bluffing. And looking around, looking at neighboring countries' fates, they felt threatened. The critics of the official narrative are not entirely wrong that the Turks actually tried to use the Soviet threat or capitalize on it at some point to receive U.S. foreign aid or Western foreign aid, right, the Marshall aid, etc. But this article shows that the threat was very much real and the Turks were very much afraid. But I just need, I want to take this opportunity to to let our like listeners know that the existential crisis in Turkey in 1945 and 46 was not just a geopolitical one. It was not just about Soviet threat. It was also about economic desperation and destitute. And this is how the article begins, right? Ankara was a grim palimpsest 
of early Republican dreams that no longer really existed. It was a poor country suffering from destitute and migrant and coal smoke and poverty. So that is the existential threat, not just the Soviet threat. But if you look at this from a presentist view, of course, it's very easy to understand why people wanted me to just focus on one side, that is the geopolitical side, the Soviet side, the Russian side of the story. One thing your approach does is that it gives back agency, really, to Turkish actors. It doesn't just assume that Turkey was this passive, helpless pawn dictated to by these greater powers on either side. Turning west at the start of the Cold War and later joining NATO it was ultimately a homemade decision. Uh, it was a path chosen by Turkish decision makers at this time. Was that something that you consciously wanted to demonstrate in the article? Absolutely. Thank you for emphasizing that. That was one of the main points of this article, that I wanted to demonstrate that Turkey was alone. And the whole NATO admission process, accession process to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was really a complicated story. About three years ago, three and a half years ago, before the pandemic, when we first did our first episode, first podcast with you, we spoke about this, that this was really unusual. And only under unusual circumstances, you, you see countries almost succumbing to a collective security mechanism. People may look at Finland and, and Sweden's uh, latest bids for the NATO accession and might get the wrong feeling that these countries have always dreamt of becoming NATO allies, right? This pro-Western security policy has always existed in these countries. That would be the wrong way to start understanding Finland and Sweden's recent bid for NATO accession. And it would be the wrong way to, to look at Turkey's NATO accession. Turkey in the 1940s did not want to join the Second World War in the first half of the 1940s, primarily because they understood this as an imperialist, Western imperialist conflict. World War II, from the Turkish perspective, was a Western imperialist conflict. They would try to do their best to stay away from it. Uh, this was part of our conversation three and a half years ago. But you know, after the war, when Turkey was essentially facing or receiving not much assistance from its Western future Western allies, they thought that the only way to counterbalance or foil the Russian threat, the Soviet threat, was to play out the geopolitical significance of the country. I'm really glad that you mentioned the word agency because we know that in realpolitik, small powers also play an important role, sometimes might even drag big powers into unwarranted conflicts or sometimes serve as useful tools to achieve their bigger, you know, bigger end. Sometimes these can happen simultaneously. My whole point in the art article is that for smaller powers like Turkey in the 1940s, geopolitics was really important, but so was hunger. Hunger, economic failures, economy, these things are at least as important as geopolitics. But seen from Washington, D.C. and Moscow, it's very difficult to convince scholars even now as historians, right? We find it difficult to convince historians in D.C. and Moscow to, to convince them that, that there is something beyond geopolitics, as seen from what is now called the Global South, right? Although Turkey is probably not considered global south, it has a unique place, but you get the point. 
And I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for Inunu, and I'm not a big time Inunu fanboy here, to convince their allies with his pleas about a possible Soviet threat that was falling on deaf ears in Washington, D.C. at the time, right? Because of this whole obsession with, with geopolitics. But I completely understand that. And particularly given today's political geopolitical circumstances. But yeah, essentially that's what I wanted to say. Now, you describe this as an exceptional period when Ankara was closer to the United States than at any other point in its history. We're talking really about a peculiar convergence of factors when geopolitical and economic crises were combined and they drove Turkish politics in the immediate post-war years. The way that you describe it, it's almost like a historical anomaly from these times, both before and after this particular period, when there was a lot more cooperation between Ankara and Moscow. So how unique was this period from that standpoint, you know, in terms of Turkey's close orientation with the US and the West? Thank you for asking that. So in the Turkish archives, it's very difficult to find juicy materials. You have to go through an insufferable amount of unnecessary documents to find something that's really valuable. This is very much unlike Russia, where it's very difficult to get into the archives. But once you do, everything that you you're, you can read will be really useful. So that's one document that I remember as to encapsulate what you just described. And it's by Alexei Voronin of the Soviet embassy in Ankara giving an interview to the TASS news agency, or the, the Soviet news agency. And he is describing, this is two years after the Soviet Union withdrew the, the demands. This is the peak of the Stalinization. And Alexei Voronin is saying, we're trying to extend an olive branch to the Ankara government. Not only they're refusing our hand, Olive branch, but they're also, as seen in the Suez crisis or Syria, acting more Catholic than the Pope. They're acting more Muslim than the Caliph. This this is partly what you're trying to describe, William. Throughout the 1950s, Turkey's foreign policy exclusively relied on the country's alliance with the West. And in geopolitical terms, indeed, as you have put it, Turkey was closer to the transatlantic community than at any other point in its history. And yet, Ankara and Moscow agreed to return to normalcy and reinstated economic cooperation in the 60s and 70s. The Soviet Prime Minister, Alexei Kosygin, came to Turkey several times for assisting Turkey's industrial development as Turkey became one of the greatest recipients of Soviet foreign aid outside the Eastern Bloc. I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. NATO ally Turkey became one of the largest recipients of uh, Soviet foreign aid outside the Eastern Bloc. And Alexei Kosygin visited Turkey several times, but he found reason to mock Turkey's development or pro-Western development and continued underdevelopment, rather, after nearly three decades of U.S. aid. And Soviet-Turkish convergence in the 60s and 70s seemed typical of Moscow's broader interactions with the global South if we disregard the fact that Turkey was actually a NATO ally. So when put in context, this episode of 1945-46 that my article explores becomes really an unusual, an unusual one, because for many in the third world, back then it was called the third world, now we call it the global south, the balancing act that Turkey pursued in the 60s was typical. Again, if we disregard the fact that Turkey was a NATO ally. And that broader pattern begs the question of how this country became a NATO ally in the first place. 
I think it invites us to consider the combined geopolitical and economic crises that draw Turkey, Turkish politics in the immediate post-war years. And shifting this perspective to diplomatically isolated Ankara, which smelled of coal smoke and migrant poverty, where rural migrants were increasingly visible, right, in this new Turkish capital, clouding the Republic's early dreams. What I tried to do with the article was to show that the 19, in 1945, the perception of a Soviet threat was not merely a strategic question, but also a key factor contributing to a sense of existential crisis. The timing of this article is very interesting, obviously, as we've already referenced in this conversation, the war in Ukraine is still going on, no end in sight. And mm. Turkey's current ties with Russia and its much vaunted balancing policy somewhere between the West and Moscow has come under a lot of scrutiny, obviously. Going back to this era, what can going back to study it tell us about this current policy? You know, as you were researching it, what light can it shed really on, on the present day position of Turkey balancing essentially the Western and Russia, Kiev and Moscow? I was listening to an interview by Viktor Orban recently, this morning actually, where I, I was really trying hard to empathize with the Hungarian perspective on the war in Ukraine. And I have to be really honest here, forget the fact that my political orientation may be slightly different or that I may be an historian. Listening to Orban and how Hungary did not really see Russia as a distant giant or on the contrary, in the country, right, as a neighboring country, because Ukraine is Hungary's neighbor. And the war in Ukraine affects Hungary immediately. Like that sealed my conviction that this is more or less how the current leadership in Turkey looks at the war in Ukraine. Again, it's not just about geopolitics, because geopolitics, if you look at it from a real political perspective, you constantly see pragmatism. You constantly see an actor trying to capitalize on a conflict. Here, if we take this misleading proactive perception and see a country that's that has trepidation rather than proactive approach trying to capitalize, this is exactly what you see in Turkey. I, I don't mean to say that Viktor Orban and Recep Tayyip Erdogan are, are very like-minded leaders. As an academic, I first try to see their nuances and distinctions rather than broad categories. But it helped me understand Orban's speech, in which he argued that Hungary would be more immediately affected, and in fact is being affected by the war in Ukraine, than by Biden or some people in Brussels who are trying to support Ukraine against the war. This is not something that I agree, but this is something that I think that Erdogan also believes in. I am just trying to understand, as an observer, how Erdogan really thinks of this conflict in and the war in Ukraine. Building up on this article, which looks at a really critical episode in Turkish history, I will say with confidence that I now understand why the Turkish foreign ministry dislikes so much the word balancing act. In short, for the layman, Turkey is not balancing. Turkey is a neighbor of Russia and will try to do its best to keep that relationship as little hostile as possible, right? And I think this is a point that I made recently in an article on the war on, on, war on the rocks uh, before the elections, the critical elections in Turkey in May, 
I said the form if if the West is expecting a huge pivot from Turkey, that would be the wrong way to look at it. Because even in the case of an Erdogan victory, I wrote with my co-author in that piece, what you should expect from Turkey is sort of improving relations with the West, because there, that much tension is unusual in Turkish history as well. But so long as that improvement is not tied to a quid pro quo break with Russia. And this was, I think, what Orban was trying to explain in his talk. And as historians or academics studying these two very difficult countries, I sometimes face this difficulty of you know, explaining what I really think in my personal life and what I think as an expert. That, unfortunately, in Turkey gets confused much more easily. And when I make these observations, when I share my observations, I'm more generally misconstrued as I don't know, a stooge or a useful tool or an apologist for these populist authoritarian figures. I'm clearly not. But this is how how politics really works in this part of the world. That was Ono Ischi. Many thanks to him for joining for episode 203. Please remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going. And you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Spread the word, give us a shout out on your own social media accounts. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter slash X, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Follow me, William Armstrong on Blue Sky. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.